Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Happy Sunday, everyone. We're working this month on the idea of intentional living. We're using this, uh, this book of Ernest Holmes called How to Change Your Life. And for those of you who weren't here last week, I would say we covered in, in some ways the most important part. Because if you want to live intentionally, you got to have an intention. <laughs> I suppose that sounds obvious. But last week we talked about how very often we only have the sketchiest idea of really what we want to do, what we want to be, how we want to show up in the world. And in fact, many of us are motivated by what we don't want. What, uh, have you ever heard the, the saying sort of out of the, 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 what is it, out of the frying pan and into the fire? Well, in our desire to get away from old ways of being, we're really perhaps not apt to head towards something that we want because that vision, that idea of where we should go, what we should be, how our life should be, just isn't as clear as the pain of where we are. And so really the, the pain is more obvious, the pain is more clear, the pain is more what's in our mind than that beautiful vision of what we'd enjoy, the more love or the more life or the more joy. So your homework last week, and and we can do it quickly enough like that right here, if you didn't have a chance to work on it, is simply to know where we're headed. What is the intention for our life? And if you could pick one and begin even dreaming about it a little bit, really have a sense of, is it, is it more love and connection that I want in my life? Is that what is most important for me right now? Or is it a greater degree of abundance in my life? Is it really feeling secure in my finances and knowing that the bases are covered? Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's feeling really good about your vocation or your job or what Whatever it is, that is the intention, my friend. And so if this month is about intentional living, we start with that intention. Where are we headed? Okay, today I'm going to start off perhaps in an unpleasant place. (laughs) So fair warning. (laughs) Because I think that right now there's already something working hard to thwart those intentions. There's already something at work in all of our lives that if unchecked, if undealt with, will mean these high visions, these high intentions have only the smallest chance of success. Can you guess what it is? It's me, and it's all of those, it's belief in all of those things. The thing most likely to stand in my way is my own thinking that got me to this point. Otherwise, I'd already be experiencing the love that I want to experience already. I'd already be experiencing the, the grandeur of life if there wasn't something in my own thinking that's active already that's kind of putting me in the little box that I live in right now. And it's nothing that there's wrong with the little box that I'm in right now, but it is made up of the beliefs and the thoughts and the patterns that I already have. And if I want to push out of that box, if I want to get a dramatically more loving picture of life, if I want to succeed in ways I've never succeeded before in love and life and whatever it is, my thinking has got to change. 
do we know what we're thinking? <laughs> Maybe a good place to start here is with a joke. I, I, I was getting blank looks here. Let's, let's go for the joke. And then, then we'll get back to what we're thinking. All right. So an atheist is rowing a boat down at the lake when suddenly the Loch Ness Monster attacks. I know, it's just a joke. So the fellow tries to row away, but the monster chases after him in the lake. He tries to fend it off with an oar, but the monster knocks the oar aside. Eventually, the monster grabs the atheist out of the boat, holds him aloft. The man is completely panicked and, and just blurts out, Please, God, save me. Suddenly, the monster and everything out on the lake freezes like it's in a dream, and a voice booms from the heavens. I thought you didn't believe in me, but now you're asking for my help? Well, the atheist looks up and says, well, a minute ago, I didn't believe in the Loch Ness Monster either. (laughs) My thesis is... So very often, we don't even know what we believe, right? And I also think that our beliefs tend to go in kind of webs of belief, right? So if we're an atheist, what are our chances of believing in the Loch Ness Monster? Some thoughts, some ways of being, some beliefs just tend to go together. What happens, do you think, If you want to assume a new belief, let's say you want complete financial freedom in your life. Maybe for the first time in your life, you want to know that there's always plenty of money for you, that your source is infinite. You want to really embrace the idea of personal, complete financial freedom. Trouble is, though... Maybe you have a whole set, not even just one, but a whole set of contrary beliefs and ideas. See, this is the way it works for most of us. And so on the positive side, we have this idea of what we want to experience, and we can even begin kind of envisioning what our life might be like if we had 100% of complete financial freedom. We kind of have that glimmer of what that could be like. But in the meantime... What are the sets of thoughts we have? You know, we did this exercise in a financial freedom class that I took 15 years ago, and I want to share it with you. So we had, it was one of those two-column exercises where you take a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle, and on the left-hand side, you write every thought and idea that you might have that might keep you from experiencing complete financial freedom. And then on the right-hand side, you write down all of the thoughts and beliefs that you have that would promote, that would, in fact, enforce your idea of complete financial freedom. And then you take a look at it. I got to tell you, the first time I took that little test, that little evaluation of my beliefs, oh my gosh, on the negative side, I had like 20 beliefs that absolutely would tend to keep me from the rich life. And on the right-hand side, the side of my positive beliefs, I probably had half that many. And I want to share just a couple of them with you today. But before we get there, what do you think happens when our beliefs are in conflict with each other? You know, there's even a psychological term 
called cognitive dissonance. For those of you not familiar with it, anytime your true beliefs, your words and your actions are at variance from one another, you will have this odd little feeling of disquiet. Some people actually describe it as more than odd. (laughs) Some people will say they actually can feel in the pit of their stomach that something is not right in the world. Even if they can't put their finger directly on the ideas or actions that are in conflict. Good example. I was at Fred Meyer a few weeks ago and I watched a teenage girl shoplifting. Now, I have my own beliefs around property and what's right and things like that. And as I'm watching her, I'm starting to actually feel ill. This is cognitive dissonance because your own beliefs are in direct conflict to something that you're observing out in the world. And well beyond the the five minutes that I observed this, probably for a couple days even, it came back in my thoughts again and kind of haunted me in a weird little way because my own beliefs are really straightforward and kind of strict, if you will, the way I was raised and beliefs around stealing and things like that. It actually made me ill to watch someone without a care in the world, seemingly, at least on the surface, putting things in her purse. This is cognitive dissonance. And we do it to ourselves all the time. Anytime we embark upon one course of action and it's against what we believe, anytime we're talking one way and believing something different, anytime our own brain is fairly evenly divided on a set of beliefs, we experience cognitive dissonance. So here's one of the pitfalls, if you will, to what we teach here on Sunday. If all we're doing is adding a few new thoughts, kind of like putting the cherry on the top of a Sunday. <laughs> I mean, I do love Sundays, and I love us on Sunday when we put the cherries on top. <laughs> I really do. It's sweet. But what's below the cherry, especially if it is beliefs that are hard and fast beliefs that we've had for a long time, the cherry on the top is much more likely to just get thrown away, and we're going to stick with what we already believe. Okay, how do we deal with this? Well, first of all, I think I'm guilty of giving you some bad advice in the past because I think there have been sermons where I have said, we just need to release those old beliefs. And I want you to try it right now. Would you please release the idea of a red monkey? How's it working? Are you now successfully not thinking of a red monkey? Okay, everybody here firmly not thinking about that cute little red monkey. <laughs> See, the trouble is we can't really undo our thoughts. And, and, and if I've been guilty before of suggesting, oh, just release that. That was, that was the way you thought when you were a kid. That, you know, that doesn't apply now. I apologize. Because the same people that brought us this idea of cognitive dissonance also says there's a way to alleviate it. And it's not by forgetting. It's not by somehow denying the thoughts. Instead, it's called dissonance reduction. And the way you do it is actually by addressing the beliefs. 
not ignoring them, not hoping they'll go away, but actually having a good hard look at them and reducing their impact on you. Now, back to my example of that, my financial freedom class. And I, I went back uh, from that 15-year-old exercise. Yeah, I'm a little bit of a pack rat. And I looked at my list, and I picked out a few of the things that I think were really instrumental in me becoming financially free. One of the, li- one of the things on my list of, of beliefs that were absolutely keeping me from financial freedom, one was that money must be earned. You know, I was raised in a very hardworking family and was fairly clearly taught that if you want to get somewhere in life, you need to work hard. Now, it doesn't mean that education doesn't help. It doesn't mean that there are are other, you know, factors of creativity and intelligence. Those were certainly a factor. But in my family, the bottom line was success equals hard work. And so, where I was at my point 15 years ago, well, I'm already working pretty darn hard. And it seemed difficult, you know, what am I going to do? Get a second job? Put in overtime all the time? Do you see how I had equated the idea of more money or the good life with working ever harder, with kind of struggling, the whole sweat of my brow kind of thing? Okay, So how do we reduce the impact of this belief? Well, first of all, we ask, is it even true? I bet I will flummox a lot of people in this room when I tell you that 80% of the world's wealth is through passive earnings. 80% of the wealth right now on the planet has been created through passive earnings, through investments, through royalties, through all kinds of things that do not require physical toiling. 80% passive earnings. I gotta tell you, when I found that out, it kind of exploded. Now, do I know how to go about getting passive earnings? You know, in a way, it kind of doesn't matter. Because what it allowed me to do was say, well, shoot, if 80% of the wealth can come from not of the sweat of my brow, we'll figure that out. But I don't need to have that belief anymore. That can be true for someone else. That can be true for my dad. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I mean, that was his belief. and, And he took that with him to the grave. But it doesn't have to be the truth of me anymore. And that's how I reduce the impact of a belief like that. I look at it head on and say, is it true? It isn't even really true, A. And B, it certainly doesn't have to be true for me. That may be the way other people choose to live their lives, and it may actually work well for them. And I can choose something differently. I can be open to new ways of earning a living. I can be open to new ways that don't require the earning part the working hard part. Okay, I'm gonna go quickly over one more thing. You know the other thing that was on my list that just made me smile and yet it was so true? I had a belief that rich people were snooty. (laughs) Do I wanna be snooty? 
Do you see how this works? This is a subtle thing. And yet, if I believe that rich people are snooty, if I believe that rich people will kind of use their money in a way that isn't quite kind or clean or good, if I have this sneaky feeling that rich people are kind of sneaky and how they got the money and that there's something not quite above board in those families where there's a lot of wealth, do I want to become that thing? Probably not. And even though actively in my head was not the thought, when I become rich, I'll become snooty, right? It wasn't an active thought, and yet, nonetheless, it was there. And that was something that was going to keep a, a kind of a glass ceiling on my earnings power, I swear to gosh. Well, it was interesting because when I was taking this class, uh, my mom and I were, she had just moved up to Portland and uh, she and I were kind of hanging out together and I went over the results of this test and I still remember, she said, well, Larry, that's the weirdest thing. I don't think that rich people are snooty. Where did you ever get that idea? And I said kind of indignantly, well, what do you mean? You remember the Carrotsons when I was growing up. They lived on the hill above our house, and they were the only people in town that had a swimming pool, and their kids had automobiles in high school. <laughs> and, I, you know, this long list of ways in which the Carrotsons had been, to my way of thinking, snooty. I said, that's what rich people are like. And she just looked at me, you know, the way mothers sometimes look at their sons. And she said, well, what about the Johnsons? What about the foreign ashes? What about the Barkers? And I said, well, they weren't rich. And she said, oh my gosh, you're kidding me. And, and she said, the, the, the foreign ashes, Dr. Foreign Ash, that owned the foreign ash clinic, that built on the wing to the hospital, that foreign ash, and I had never really thought about it that way. I used to play with their kids and they were so fun and, and, and just matter of fact and free. I never thought that they had money. And then I said, and the Johnsons? What do you mean the Johnsons? He was a general contractor. I went with his daughter, Camilla, uh, to our junior prom, the Johnsons. And she said, well, yeah, the general contractor, as in he built Salishan. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> How? How had I somehow taken that one example of the Carrotsons up the street that kind of, in some ways, did kind of, in a showy way, let everyone know that they had some money? How did that color my idea of what rich people were like? Pure craziness, right? My mom was absolutely right. I had grown up with some friends that were very well off, and I hadn't even noticed it. So again, how do we do this dissonance reduction? We take a look at the belief, any belief that has us headed in a direction other than where we want to go, and we ask ourselves, is it true? We ask ourselves, does it have to be true for me? We ask ourselves, is this just something from the past that's stuck in my head? And through no fault of my own, it's time for a revision. 
That's how we do this work. We cannot simply assume that by adding that cherry of a thought, that, that new and bright idea on the top of a really messy Sunday, that anything good is going to come from it. We got to start from the bottom. We got to make sure that the entire ingredients that are going to go into our life are all wholesome, all in alignment with what we want to do. Otherwise, we get that cognitive dissonance. Otherwise, we know something isn't quite right. Otherwise, have you ever done an affirmation and even when you were saying it, a part of you was going, this just didn't feel really right. Have you ever had one of those affirmations that were like, my day-to-day is beautiful and loving and I will experience the full joy of the universe? And as you said it, a little voice just said, yeah, right. (laughs) That's that cognitive dissonance. And it's there for a reason. It's telling you that what you need to back up that thought that you want to have, that new way of being that you want to explore, it's telling you that it probably isn't going to work because it's in opposition to what you really believe. It's saying that there are beliefs in your, your cadre of beliefs, in your, in your whole history of beliefs that need to be amended, that need to be looked at, that need to be tweaked in order for you to be successful. The next thing I want to talk about today is the idea of mental equivalence. And I, and I think I want to start off with uh, what Ernest Holmes said about this idea of mental equivalence. He said, the great limitless source of supply is merely waiting for me to place my order. I feel the experience of it. I picture myself enjoying it. I see its desirability and value in all forms. And I'm planning on how it adds to my experience of the most worthy living. This is the process of building a mental equivalent. We need to feel that the desired good is actually ours now in all of its fullness. This is how the law works. It manifests whatever we completely accept. This is faith. And so you notice, even Ernest is saying, this isn't about just a simple idea or or one picture of what I would like to have. It's the whole view of what your life would be like if your dreams were realized. So it's not just an affirmation. It's not just one idea. It's not just the cherry on the top. It's the whole recipe. If I were independently wealthy, if I were truly loved in the most amazing way, if I had the best job on the planet, if those things were true or some set of those things were true, then what's the whole picture of my life? Not just the one idea, that's the cherry, but what would my whole life look like, right? That's the idea of a mental equivalent. It goes beyond just changing a thought and represents your acceptance of a whole web of thoughts, a whole interlocking um, set of thoughts that are stable, so you've gotten rid of the cognitive dissonance, they're powerful, they're, they're making you feel almost compelled to move forward into this new way of being. And you know what? It comes with an amazing ability to be solid. 
Because when you're in alignment, when your thoughts and ideas, when your, your pictures, your vision, when you have this mental equivalent and it all hangs together, it means you're in alignment. It means your thoughts, your emotional body, your words, it means your actions, it means all of you is motivated along a very singular trajectory towards what it is that you desire. And when you put that level of momentum when you put a, a force together of a whole web of thoughts, then, then when you get a little bit of dis- dissonance, when someone else comes up to you and says, yeah, right, Larry, you know, that's a sweet idea, but that's not really going to happen, you won't even hear them. When you have that level of integrity in your thinking about what you desire and hold on to it as though it's already complete and in your heart and part of who you are and part of how you talk, A, you're not even apt to hear comments like that. And when you do, you just smile. You say to yourself, well, that might be okay for you, but the truth of me is the beautiful love that is in my heart. It, it, it is that, that without question nature of the full support of the universe. You can speak with great authority because you are in complete alignment. All right, I've given you a little bit, I hope, of the taste of a mental equivalent, but I would suggest for homework this week that we start with the cognitive dissonance. And I would even recommend, if you're willing, to do that uh, two-column exercise. So first of all, taking your desire from last week, that that, uh, overreaching goal of what you want to experience in the future, whether it's a fabulous new career or a new relationship, whether it's, um, I don't know, domestic harmony in your home, whatever that vision of, of growth that you want to accept, I'd like you to do two columns. One column is, what are my ideas and beliefs that might stand in the way of it? And what are my ideas and beliefs that will tend to support it? And then here's the work, my friends, one by one, looking at the beliefs and the ideas that may stand in the way of it. We need to do some cognitive reduction. We need to ask ourselves, is this really true? I was working with a woman not too long ago who's a about my age and entering the uh, the job market again. And oh my gosh, the list of things on the negative side. Well, I'm too old to get a job. Uh, women tend to not get good jobs in this society. I mean, the, the list was a long one. And I said, okay, we gotta start somewhere. Let's start here. Does it have to be true? So no women your age are getting hired? Well, well, of course not. I mean, I'm sure some women are. I said, let's look up the statistics. You know, surprisingly, employers right now are less likely to hire brand new young people because they don't have as good of a work ethic. So especially for the income level that my client was desiring, that kind of middle management, They don't actually like hiring young people for middle management. She, at her age, was actually in a better position than what she had thought, right? So we looked at it head on and we said, okay, is this true? She said, well, it's sometimes true. I can't just say it's not, well, I mean, you know. She said, it's sometimes true. I said, okay, does it have to be true for you? 
And she said, no. She said, I can be one of the people that can get a great job at my age. Do you see how we reduced the dissonance through that process? So that's what I'm asking you to do with your, your pros and your cons, your beliefs for and your beliefs against. On your list of beliefs against, just ask yourself, is it true? Does it have to be true for me? Is this always the case? Chip away at it so that those old beliefs have less power over you. Okay. I'm going to close with a, a final quote from How to Change Your Life and a Prayer. Mental equivalents make it possible for you to work out your plans. Your thoughts must contain the best because you want to bring your good to fruition in the best possible way. When you are free from the negation of emotional conflict, your mind becomes a clear, pure channel through which God flows. And the good you so desire will be created for you easily. Thus, Clear thinking, health, happiness, friendships, and prosperity. They are all important and worthy, but they are also steps on the stairway with which we climb in our ascent to spiritual realization itself. Let us pray. There is one power, one life, one good, one God. And what I know about this God is it is the ultimate source of all things, all love, all joy, all peace, all utility, all harmony, all abundance. It's all from God, and it's all an infinite supply. And so on this day, I claim my share of infinity. And you know what? It's still infinity. I claim for myself infinite love, infinite joy. The infinity of good that I desire is mine now. And any thoughts that might tend to stand in the way of it, any, any dissonance in my thinking, I simply claim on this day that it begins to be reduced. That thought by thought as things come to me that don't match this plan for the, the gracious life, the, the sweet love, as those thoughts come up, I recognize the inherent non-truth in them. I recognize my own power of thinking something more powerful. And as it is true for me, I know it is true for each person in this room. Each person here has that capability of examining their thoughts for, for their utility, looking at them from a, a place of love and disconnect, able to choose which thoughts really make a difference and to work on changing those thoughts of reducing the power of those thoughts that no longer serve. This is the truth, the, uh, the ability of each person in this room. I claim it on this day. And I offer my thanks. I am grateful for this ability of humanity to change our thinking, to make a difference in the world. And so I release this prayer into the activity and action of the law itself. I let it be, and together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. So glad you were here today. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. 
We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.